and welcome to the voice of the child. My guests today are Anne Neal from Legal Action for Women and Tracy Norton, who volunteers at the centre. Legal Action for Women, or law, describes itself as a grassroots, anti-sexist, anti-racist legal service for women. Law also coordinates the Support Not Separation Coalition, which has been set up to end the unwarranted separation of children from their mothers during divorce and child protection proceedings. Law's London branch is based at the Crossroads Women's Centre in Kentish Town. Anne and Tracy, welcome to the Voice of the Child podcast. Glad to be here. Pleasure. Um, you obviously both work at Legal Action for Women, um, which has been up and running since 1982. What's the history behind the project? Okay, well, Legal Action for Women was based at the uh, what was the King's Cross Women's Centre. We've had a women's centre since 1975. It was started by the Wages for Housework campaign. It started in a squat. Um, it ended up in King's Cross for about 20 years. And at that time, King's Cross was a very busy red light area and one of the groups based at the women's center was the english collective of prostitutes and women started coming to the women's center because they were being picked up by the police even when they weren't working there was a lot of police racism and harassment basically so women started coming to the women's center and there was a need for some legal advice so um, legal action for women was started with some lawyers who came and did a monthly Um, advice session at the Women's Centre. Since then, it's gone on to do um, the children work which we're talking about now and also a lot of work with asylum seekers. So, um, you know, getting getting rights for women who are asylum seekers. And there's a big group of asylum seekers that meets at the Women's Centre, which Legal Action for Women is very involved in. So what kind of work are you doing at the moment? Tracy? We do all sorts of things from court hearings, uh, women who are already in proceedings, women who are starting proceedings, but we also work with women who are in the, the very start of the process, such as uh, going to Section 47s and or child in need. And we're, we're working with, um, we have a self-help group of mums that meets every month. Um, we have a regular picket every month as well and we often meet women coming we, we pick at the family court in Holborn and we often meet women coming out of court who subsequently come to the mums meetings but we get lots of calls as well really word of mouth um, women call from outside London as well where there are many fewer resources than in London so we might be working on with in relation to adoptions, in relation to trying to get children back from foster care who've been in foster care, and we've had some success with that, um, helping mums who are where the children have been put on child protection. Um, a big area of work is women who've been who are victims of domestic violence because we ha- and we have really noticed an increase of women coming. Um, the two groups based at the Women's Centre here, who are also part of the Support Not Separation Coalition are Women Against Rape and Black Women's Rape Action Project. So um, as more and more women have been coming um, with domestic violence cases, we've been working, you know, we work collectively on those and have, have really, we've noticed an increase of domestic violence. Um, the majority of mums who come to us are single mums. Sometimes with adoption cases, it's, it's a, two parents and sometimes it's the grandmother. Um, but it's overwhelmingly single mothers. It's overwhelmingly women of colour, um, quite often immigrant women, um, as you would hearing from Moksha's case. And um, 
it, it's often and often women have mental health problems or or disabilities as well. So and overwhelmingly, women have no money. So that's that's the the women that we're mostly seeing who are, you know, have the least resources and then find themselves up against the family court in one way or another. Tracy, when you're organising these pickets and attending them and women come out of the courtroom, what do they say to you when they see the picket? I think they're quite surprised that uh, a group of people, and there's quite a large group of us, uh, understand exactly what they're going through. You have to remember that in these courts, they are in secret. And these women are told they're not allowed to tell anyone. And then there's a group of people outside the court shouting out very loudly <laughs> about the injustices that are actually going on behind those walls. And I think they, they suddenly feel relief that someone is going to listen to them and actually believe them. So what kind of injustices are you seeing um, at Legal Action for Women? Well, we're seeing children being separated from mums who absolutely should not be separated. And we started the Support Not Separation Coalition because our whole emphasis is on the fact that the trauma of separating children from their mums never gets taken into account in all of these proceedings, whether it's foster care or adoption or giving children, making children go to live with the violent father. The fact is that it's overwhelmingly mums who are primary carers, who've been looking after the children, and then the children are sometimes overnight taken away and end up permanently taken away. And that whole that's extremely traumatic for the children. It's traumatic for the mums as well. But the issue of of the, the fact that that separation doesn't figure in any social worker's reports, it's hardly mentioned by the judge. Sometimes they say, oh, well, the child might be a little concerned at the beginning, but they'll get over it. You know, that those are the kind of comments that we hear when... Um, the separation is really being dismissed. So, you know, we're seeing that that's a really crucial issue for us. And a crucial issue is that the, under the Children Act, women ought to be able to go to social services for support under Section 17 of the Children Act. And yet when they go, we've heard what happens, you know, women like Moksha's experience of going to social services is repeated time and time again where women have gone maybe they've you know they're struggling in one way or another and social services come in and immediately start making you know judgments about what kind of parent what kind of mother they think the mother is and their whole life is under scrutiny and things which ought to be triggers for getting more support, for example, finding out that a young mum was in care herself, for example, instead of that being a trigger for support, it's a trigger for taking your children away. And, you know, it's, it's an absolutely, women have really horrendous experiences when they ought to be able to go and get support. So we don't have any research at the moment on how that separation is affecting children. But we do have emerging research which is saying quite clearly that women who are being separated in that way are at much higher risk of things like suicide. Are you seeing any mental health decline in the women that you're helping during that process or any suicide attempts during that process? Uh, absolutely. We haven't seen suicide attempts, um, fortunately. But we definitely see, you know, women really struggle because you've got you've got the social workers against you. You might have the guardian against you. You might have a very unsympathetic judge. And we see the kind of comments, you know, that ju the comments that Judge Tolson made about 
it's not it was it's not rape if you don't physically fight off that is was not an exceptional case women are hearing that kind of thing all the time and yes it has a very devastating effect on your mental health and if you frankly if it didn't you would be you would wonder why because it's very distressing these are your children you've cared for them you love them all you want you want the best for them you've you're trying to protect them and actually it's you who then comes under attack so it's a very very distressing and brutal process in which if you then do express your upset that gets written down as you are uncooperative you are unable to work with professionals those are all um, phrases that we hear time and time again that women are told so that gets used against you if you're too calm you know they're likely to say that that expresses something wrong with you as well. So you're really in a catch-22 because if you're too, you, you might be too calm, means you're, you've got something wrong with you. And if you're too emotional, that means you can't be a good parent. Tracy, do you think the system understands the process and how it affects people? I don't actually think the people who work in the system really that much care about the individuals. They are following procedures that they have put in place themselves in a, in a, in a lot of cases, uh, misinterpreting the Children's Act quite often, particularly Section 17, and the difference between Section 17 and Section 47 of the Children's Act is completely misinterpreted by social workers. I'm not really sure they are even interested in how it affects the individuals. So for listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with those sections of the Children's Act, can you explain them? Well, Section 17, as my colleague has already said, is in place so that all families should be able to turn to social services in a time of need. Now, that might be because you have a disabled child, you have a disability yourself, you might have to have an operation and you might be a single mum, so you just need some support while you're having this operation. Your child might have special educational needs and need help in school. Um, you might have some housing issues. All of these things, in Section 17 of the Children's Act, there is uh, a place where these people should be able to go and get support. Um, and, and we are increasingly seeing when mums and families try to um, use Section 17, they are immediately criticised and it immediately turns to the other side, which is a Section 47. And a Section 47 is very different. That means social services deem that there is something wrong within your family system for whatever reason, and they start an investigation against you as opposed to helping you. And um, so we're seeing misuse of these two sections within the Act. And what other trends are you seeing or themes, recurring themes in these cases? Okay, a big recurring theme is the issue of domestic violence and the fact that mums don't get support to leave violent situations and then that gets used against them. Increasingly also, um, as a result of the very vociferous father's lobby, um, they which it denies the existence of domestic violence pretty much. And so women get accused of making false allegations and then they get accused of, quote, parental alienation. And if they dare to say, well, actually, this father was violent to me or he was violent to the children, they 
it gets turned back on the woman. And we, see, we are seeing case, more cases, I think, where residence is being transferred. I think there are the insistence in the law that it's best for children to have contact with both parents is really dangerous and we think it should be abolished um, because the starting point is always that the child should be seeing this father almost regardless of his behavior and you know we know rapist fathers who've been um, given con unsupervised contact we convicted rapist fathers you know other men who have been violent and have been violent to the children are over and over again given um, unsupervised contact and if the child then doesn't want to go to contact the mum then gets blamed for that and then gets sometimes the um, you know there's a transfer of residence I mean judges are far too quick to transfer residence they're far too quick to dismiss the severity of domestic violence they don't recognize coercive and controlling behavior and they don't recognize that the the men many many of the men who are pursuing cases through court are doing it as an extension of their coercive and controlling behavior which has probably gone on for many years prior and they use the family courts and the the social workers and the guardians often get sucked in because these are manipulative men who are good at manipulation and they often come across as very nice, very calm, very reasonable, couldn't possibly have done these things that the woman says they've done. Meanwhile, the woman is increasingly hysterical because nobody's listening to her or listening to the children. And then that ends up with the fathers having many more rights than they than they ought to have. And the fact is that men who who are well-meaning don't aren't aren't the ones generally who end up in court because if you've got a well-meaning father and you've broken up from them you women work it out because yes nobody's trying to deprive children of their fathers and mums want them to have contact in many cases but it really is the the most manipulative and the most coercive and controlling who really pursue through the courts and they go on for years even when the children are saying no I don't want to go when the children get older and start reporting violence themselves their voices aren't listened to um, it's it's a really horrendous situation so that's one of the trends I would say um, that's on the increase I think that there I mean we know that there are more children being taken into care so there, that's on the increase. Um, I think I heard on the radio this morning that it's the highest number for 10 years who are in care. Um, I think the issue of, of mental health being used against mums, of um, children, women who are in care themselves, um, then are often the ones whose children get put up for adoption. They get taken very young. For example, there was a young mum that we helped who'd been in care for two years herself as a result of being gang raped. And she was taken away from her mum because they said it was the mum's fault, even though she wasn't with the mother at the time. So she spends two years in care. Mum gets her back. She's clearly traumatised. When she comes to have a child herself, which she did at about 18, um, that the fact that she'd been in care was used against her as a reason why she wasn't fit. The fact that she had mental health 
she had had mental health issues because she was traumatized. She was gang raped at the age of 10. Well, you would be traumatized. But again, instead of putting in the support that she needed, and she and her mum should have had all those years ago, that didn't happen. And then she comes to have a baby and the baby's taken... Well, I think she was put in a mother and baby hostel, which we know those places are set up to fail, basically, because you're completely isolated from your... Um, family you're isolated from your support network so the baby was she was set up to fail so I would say that the kids in care the the children being taken um, you know at a, a baby's being taken at birth especially when a child has been taken an older child has been taken we've 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 fought cases of that and actually we were successful in keeping keeping a baby who um social services wanted to take at birth because the first child had been taken. But I think that's probably a I think that's probably a trend. But I'd say the biggest trend is probably among um in relation to the domestic violence and in relation to um that not being taken seriously in the courts. Although the growing movement of domestic violence survivors speaking out about it is also shifting the climate. So the fact that we know what Judge Tolson said for example, is a big victory because we know that he, he and others have been saying that for years and we didn't know about it. So, you know, the fact that the movement is growing is really, um, is, is very, very, is important. It's fantastic that more and more women are feeling able to speak out. So you wouldn't naturally expect judges to um, have these kinds of views um in relation to these kinds of cases, particularly in relation to domestic violence and ultra-sensitive um, cases involving adoption, for example. But we obviously know that this does happen. And I would imagine with the number of cases that you handle every year, you must see a great deal of um, behaviour which you may not feel is particularly in line with the level of responsibility and professionalism that may be required of individuals in these cases. Are you able to offer examples of things that you've seen which concern you in terms of professional behaviour, whether it's judges or social workers or lawyers? Tracy? If we go back to the the early stages of these procedures, um, social workers and, and social workers misinterpret the Children's Act to their own ends. They come into families and very bombastically tell people who are not au fait with the law, oh, we can do this and we can do that and we're allowed to just do this and we're allowed to just do that. And many families believe what these people are saying. They don't question it. And secondly, they sit there and think, well, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. So I'll just let them come and do whatever they want to do. And then we'll move on. But of course, they find themselves in a whole heap of trouble where the law is misinterpreted. And the slightest thing that they do or say is over-exaggerated misinterpreted and, and and it comes out in paperwork that just you actually don't recognize the person in the paperwork you think have they written something about someone else and mixed it with my paperwork it's absolutely unbelievable that that starts there if you then move from a section 47 where the social workers are making these reports those same reports end up in the court system and they're full littered with misinterpretations and the parents put their hands up and say, well, that's not true and that's not true. And it seems to us that the more these parents fight, the more it's used against them. 
If you've got factual, sorry, Anna, just one more question for, for Tracy or for you. Um, if you've got evidence or proof that there is a factual inaccuracy in these documents, how easy is it to rectify those documents? It's virtually impossible. If in, in the child protection system, so that's the section 47, before you're in court, it's just taken as the social workers correct, you attempt to get this stuff corrected, all of a sudden they shut down so you can't see your data and they just keep denying you access to your data. Um, those then misinterpretations come into court. You then, as a parent, try to get the evidence brought in that these things are wrong. And um, the family court system is not like criminal court. If a judge does not want your evidence in, the judge has the absolute right to deny that evidence in. So you are denied the right to have your own evidence heard. And how does that impact injustice in terms of these individual cases? Well, it leads to all kinds of injustice. (laughs) And I was going to say in relation to your other question, lawyers, family court lawyers, far too often tell mums that they should just go along with whatever they're being asked to do by social services or, um, you know, the things that they're being told to do in a way that is... Many women come to us and say that they didn't think the lawyer was on their side and the lawyer didn't really fight for them, the lawyer was careless, Um, you know, they made mistakes themselves and... The, the the whole system where lawyers don't want to, especially, I think, in places outside London where the the judges and the lawyers, are, are, you know, it's a much smaller community, lawyers are much more reluctant to stand up to judges if they know that they're going to be up against them, you know, in some other, in another case. And also, most lawyers uh, represent local authorities as well as parents I mean not at the same time not in the same case obviously but in the course of their career they represent both and that to us that means that there has to be a sort of inherent conflict of interest might be too strong a word but possibly not because they have got the point of view of the local authority in their mind because half the time it's the local authority they're representing. And it's we found it really difficult to find lawyers who, who only represent parents, for example. But I think the standard of... I mean, there's a big issue of women not getting legal aid, which obviously should be changed, and the legal aid ought to be reinstated for all those private family law cases. But the standard of lawyers... Um, is really problematic because they really don't, you know, lawyers will say, oh, don't ask for that. Like if you're saying, well, I don't want him to have overnight contact because I'm still breastfeeding. Um, a, a lawyer might say, oh, well, the judge won't like that. So don't don't go for that. But the fact is, if you don't go for what you actually think is the right thing in relation to contact, for example, if you don't go for it at the beginning, then you're bound to end up with something that you think is really wrong because, you know, you've got, you've got to have, you've got to be able to put forward your point of view and what you think is best for, for the children. And lawyers will say, oh, no, the judge won't like that or, oh, don't say that because the judge will get cross. But that's a really unhelpful approach. You know, you've got to, you, women ought to be being encouraged to say what they think is best 
and to fight for that because it's you know women are the primary carers and we know our children better than pretty much anybody else so just taking you both back for a moment to the phenomenon of judges um having large amounts of discretion to accept evidence um Mm. or not even Mm. if that evidence shows um without a shadow of a doubt that the report or that something within those reports is not factually accurate would we get to a point where if those things are not rectified, there could potentially be something like an adoption order made when it should never have been made in the first place? Correct. Uh, an adoption order, long-term foster care um, placements, because there has been a complete inaccuracy that the families have not allowed to bring their evidence into court. And the problem they then have in their appeal process is that one of the the issues that's looked at on appeal is whether there has been any breach in the law. And that's actually really quite important. But of course, because the evidence wasn't there, there has been no breach in the law. Um, Whereas if the evidence had been brought in and the judge had still dismissed it, there would have been a breach. And so it has a detrimental effect on women's cases. So just moving on to another topic now, you're working currently on a post-adoption contact application for, for one of the um, the ladies that you're assisting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is relatively new in terms of the, um, the clause that's been added into the legislation to allow that to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, the latest update on that in terms of the work you're doing around this area? Well, as you said, we've only just started. Um, we've, we've helped one mum make an application. It hasn't come back yet, so we don't really know how it's going to work. But we do know from um, another case where the judge actually said in court that the gra- it was a case with a grandmother, that the grandmother ought to have be able to have contact. Um, and it was kind of handwritten into the court order. It was a little bit strange, but it was in the court order. Um, but then social services came back and said that they couldn't find an adoptive family who would agree to contact and so if the grandmother in this case didn't agree the child would have to go into long-term foster care now everybody knows that you know really and this was a she was only about one or two she was really small um and her mum should have had support and that well that was another case of a young of a young mum um with very mild learning disabilities um, who should have had support to keep that baby. But anyway, um, so then the, then the family are in this situation of being told, well, e- either your child can, you know, go into long-term foster care and be shunted around in foster care, which we know they are, or they can go to this, you know, f- perfectly loving family. So in that situation, they, they didn't feel that they had a choice. Um, but I think that, I think that relying on um, the the agreement of an an adoptive family is is not the right approach because you've got to start with what is really in the best interest of the child and this child you know had an extended family she was loved she was wanted she was cared for and that child needs to know that in you know how however that's conveyed to her because you know you only have to look at um my my sort of favorite program what's it called Long Lost Family. You only have to watch Long Lost Family to see the devastation that, that, you know, adult, adults 
have gone through for many, many years, even when they've had very happy adoptions, mm. of all that slight niggling feeling, didn't my mum want me? Didn't she love me? You know, was, I, was there something wrong with me that she rejected me? You know, all of those are completely normal feelings that an adoptive child is likely to have. So knowing that, you know, being able to know your grandmother in that situation could only be a bonus. Mm.